Yes, welcome back. Thank you guys for tuning in. I'm really excited about this episode. Thanks for coming as well. As I say always, thanks so much for tuning in. Please like, subscribe, comment. Any engagement really, really helps with the pod. And yeah, I hope you enjoy. I'm really excited about this episode. We've got Alex from Babylon Micro Farms. And I'll tell you why I'm excited about this episode. So I went back home over Christmas. So this is the second podcast we've recorded since Christmas. I was chatting to my dad, who's really interested in this stuff as well. And he started talking to me about this concept of agricultural sprawl, or he's probably going to, I probably butchered this, but he, he was telling me about this concept of, we, we talk so much about urban sprawl and urban stuff going on, but actually a huge issue is the amount of agricultural land that is uh, being used, misused, degraded. They, what's the right word there? Right. <laughs> Getting worse over time because we're over farming it. And so we really need solutions to fix our agricultural system and the way we eat, the way we produce food, all this kind of stuff. So businesses like yours are so exciting. So I won't leave the audience waiting anymore. <laughs> Give us a bit a bit of an intro on, on, on what Babylon Microfarms is. Awesome. Well, thanks, Harry. Really excited to be here. Love the pod. Love what you guys are doing. Yeah. So uh, for Babylon Microfarms, we build distributed vertical farming systems that allow businesses and communities to grow their own fresh food. So these are small, automated indoor farms that basically can be plugged into food service operations so people have a year-round supply of fresh sustainable produce and you know broadly speaking agriculture is responsible for 70 percent of the world's water usage responsible for 20 percent of the emissions and yeah like from biodiversity loss to soil degradation poisoning the water it's like a huge issue we're just one small solution that's helping kind of rectify that and give people an alternative where they can source their own produce sustainably. That's really cool, man. Just, just like simply, effectively, I think a lot of people have seen vertical farms, you know, these like huge, huge warehouses. And what you mean by distributed is they're basically smaller scale solutions. So we don't have to have these huge warehouses with these huge operations, right? You can put these individual like micro units into specific buildings. So I, I know you sell to like hospitals, companies, all this kind of stuff. Why was doing that distributed and smaller scale solution important? Yeah, so we started out originally as a research project looking at how small could a vertical farm be to feed a family. And we're yeah. actually open sourcing those designs, posting them online uh, with the hope that people would rebuild them in refugee camps. And that was the research project. And through that, we we're like, wow, you can actually do these farms at a small scale. They can produce a real impactful amount of food. Why is no one doing that? And so we founded a company to create that. And it's a really different take on the industry. The status quo today, where a lot of the investment dollars have flowed, is towards these big greenhouses, plant factories, as they're called. And yeah, they can be like hundreds of thousands of square feet in the sort of anonymous warehouse in an industrial park somewhere. And I think there's plenty of opportunity for those, but there are some real challenges with them. Energy prices, last mile delivery, all of that stuff. We saw an opportunity to build these little modules, run them through the cloud, and then actually put them at the point of consumption. So mm -hmm. people are growing their own food, their own supply, their own, there's, there's very little waste. And there's also kind of this added value of having it there in front of the consumer that you don't get with those big farms. Yeah, it's quite cool. I, like, I loved your website. Mm -hmm. And if, if uh, for the listeners, uh, viewers, all this kind of stuff, go look at the website because they, they're really cool little units where you can literally see the, the produce being grown. So yeah, like t today, what are you growing? Yeah, so we have about 40 varieties. So we cover mostly salad greens, herbs, um, some edible flowers, typically stuff that's quick to grow and highly perishable is where we focused our efforts. In the long run, the industry is heading towards kind of vine crops and fruits, so like berries, strawberries, tomatoes, peppers, things like that are grown commercially. 
and we're looking at that for our, our future iterations. Yeah, so, I mean, I'd love to dig a bit deeper into how this, you said a bit about why it got started, but the how, I thought that was so interesting. So this start, started with a what, uni research project. Yeah, that's right. It was open source for the common good, and we were kind of looking at different applications for open source, and I think that's a, a fascinating area that's having a big impact. And so we started building these little farms. I have this picture of it made of, like, those red American solo cups, <laughs> um, and it didn't look pretty, but grew some plants. I was like, damn, that was quick. That was easy. They taste good. What would it take to build future prototypes? And so we just started going for different grants, competitions, all that kind of stuff, and, you know, just snowball from there. That's so cool. So, I mean, you must have started this company pretty young. Then. Yeah, I think I was 22. Crazy, yeah. crazy. How does a 22, because this is a huge infrastructural project, right? This is this is pretty big stuff, pretty hard tech. How does a 22-year-old go, like, one, have the confidence to be like, fuck it, I'm doing this. And two, I mean, just even go about trying to sell investors, grant providers that a 22-year-old is the is the guy to, to build the solution. Yeah, it's an interesting question. I think, yeah, maybe a bit of blind ignorance is part of it. <laughs> but also, you know, we I, we have complete faith in what we're doing. My co-founder is a, a brilliant engineer. And I think between us, we were just, we won't let anyone stop us. And I think that's helped. Yeah. Um, but that takes maybe a little bit of kind of naivety. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I love I love that concept of, yeah, like blind in ignorance. It's like actually the most like deluded people are often the most successful because they're, they're just the only ones that have the balls to do anything. We, we had quite yeah. a few people like, do you have any idea how complicated what you're proposing is? And we're like, yep, we'll figure it out. <laughs> yeah, I love that. I love that. So what, this six years ago? And that is a whole different landscape. Like I think people underestimate how far we've come in the last six years just on technology and also a lot of the inputs to the technologies which enable a vertical farm. Like It was still really quite new back then. It's only really been in the three years that, well, at least they've come on the radar f for myself. So well, how nascent was the industry when you were starting? And can you talk a bit to where we've come in those six years? Yeah, so for context, most indoor farms run using hydroponics. So it is growing plants in water. There's no soil. They use 90% less water than growing outdoors, no pesticides, no chemicals. And so that technology has been around for a while, but it mm. was not commercially viable for most crops. In the last, like, I'd say 10 years, there are a couple of inflection points. One is LED lights. They became efficient so that you could actually do this at a much larger scale, reduced energy costs. And then the other one is around kind of IoT and machine learning. So we've seen the price of sensors, things like that fall. You can then have these kind of um, automated farms with a lot of data collection. And I think all of that stuff sort of lined up and then you've just seen this explosion of innovation of which we've you know we're one of the companies trying to crack the code and have you found that the solutions and the inputs to your technologies are getting cheaper and easier like is, is the has the cost come down dramatically or not really i think at the commercial scale yes so particularly around lighting because it's the biggest cost uh, for us we have such a different model we're kind of we're solving a lot of different problems and while we benefit from those cost savings those aren't like that key to our business model okay okay Interesting, interesting. So yeah, I'd love to dive, uh, I mean, take a step back and talk about the problem, like the problem you're trying to solve. I know this, you're kind of passionate about it. Like, we, I, I mentioned it a bit uh, briefly at the start, but can you paint a picture for me of like what is wrong with the agricultural system today and why such a dramatic change is needed? Yeah, so agriculture is by far and away the most destructive uh, human activity on the planet, right? It's responsible for 70% of the water usage, 20% of the greenhouse gas emissions. But at the same time, when you, you take into account soil degradation, biodiversity loss, some of that sprawling farming that you, you mentioned earlier, that's like pastures, things like that. 
uh, and then the runoff that's poisoning the oceans. Like in aggregate, it is toxic. And I think people know that. They have known it for a while. And now all of the solutions exist for us to change that. And I think for indoor farming specifically, which is a small part of the solution, it is really productive. It eliminates the supply chain and it can be done in urban areas. So there are a lot of benefits to that. But for the vast majority of crops and like calories for the human diet, we're going to need to see a kind of wholesale change in agriculture. And I think plant-based meats and stuff like that can play a role, but it's also mainly going to be sort of regenerative agricultural practices, redesigning some of the inputs around like fertilizers, pesticides, stuff like that. So there's tons, tons of opportunity. Like it's a very exciting sector. And I think, again, all the solutions are there. We just need to implement them. Yeah, I mean, we had someone else on the pod. I haven't actually released the episode yet, but he was talking about how much soil, ha- like the problem we have with soil and that actually the new, because we've over-farmed the land for so long, you know, like the output of that land is getting far less and the nutrient quality of the food in 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 what we buy has just fallen so dramatically over the, the last kind of 100, even like 200 years because agriculture has become so intense and it's just not really that that healthy anymore then you have like the pesticides right which you're saying which which you refer to as as the runoff right is that we have uh or we're using all these chemicals in our food and then that the rain and wet water then goes into the ocean so it's kind of there's just so much that needs to be fixed in in that and i think the, the vertical farm as you say creates a really nice uh solution to to kind of tackle a lot of them and also food miles right yeah you can actually grow this stuff locally so you, i don't i mean you go to tesco in in the uk and all the apples are from new zealand why, why have you picked the furthest away <laughs> country <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's interesting. So I think uh, th- there's two elements to your business that are, that are really cool. So we spoke a bit about the climate impact of agriculture and farming and, and now just a just general agricultural system. But there's also the health element, right? Is that um, because they're, they're, they're somewhat interlinked, but because we've over-farmed everything for so long, the nutritional quality of the food that we eat from a typical supermarket is has fallen dramatically loads of pesticides there's all kinds of i don't even want to think about it (laughs) but but you guys don't have a lot of that so can you talk a bit to how your produce is um healthier for for your customers yeah so the we we can it's called controlled environment agriculture because we control all the variables so both the environment and the solution the plants are growing and that means we can actually dial in the conditions specifically for different crop types and that is leading to much greater nutrient density so we test our crops against kind of um, stuff from whole foods other indoor farms we come up as much more nutrient dense that's both our growing method and the fact that there are no yeah there are no food miles there's no transportation because essentially once you harvest something it starts degrading so in the u.s most stuff is traveling three to five thousand miles before it gets to your plate it's been in a truck for 10 days two weeks um, so it's not the same plant as when it was harvested. Whereas for us, we're harvesting feet from the consumer, sometimes minutes before, and you can literally taste the difference. And then we're actually showing that it's quantifiably healthier for you as well. So have you guys done tests on the actual like, nutritional quality? Is there, is there any like, stats you can control? Um, I would be happy to share. So we are, it's broken down between different kind of macronutrients, and we perform pretty well across several of them. Uh, again, ma- mainly a function of how fresh it is. So, we, yeah, we send off different leaf samples from our kind of grow lab to uh, get them tested. So there's higher nutrients, but then there's also less chemicals in, involved, right? Like that, That's one of the things that I, and I, somewhat naively I'm, I'm stressing about at the moment is I've just been awoken to is just how many chemicals are in the food, even like whole foods or like apples or, or fruit or ve- veg or whatever, is that actually how many chemicals that could be harmful to a human, a, a 
you wouldn't drink that stuff, would you? Do you know, yeah, what I mean? it, you know as in, there's sort of the pesticide risk is one you know obvious issue, but there's also preservatives, there's washing, there's all of this stuff that goes into it, and we just don't have that, right? You're, you're as a consumer, you're watching it from seed to harvest, like it's grown in your own garden, uh, and that is educating people on what they're eating, but also showing them that it can be kind of pure and 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 clean. And what is the cost difference? between you and say the typical food today and obviously the cost is coming down dramatically and that's why really bullish view for the future but um what is the cost difference today and what are the steps and how long will it be in your opinion until the cost of producing at these like distributed localized uh, vertical farms in your own house your own building whatever is the same as just going to going supermarket yeah, so f- for us, we're generally a premium product today. We're selling on quality, but for certain herbs, microgreens, things like that, um, we can save people money very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, for the industry as a whole, there are there are profitable and, and competitive vertical farms now. I think they're facing some challenges from energy prices. Yeah. Um, w- one of the benefits of our model is that because it's distributed, right, these are self-contained modules. We're producing them at scale. We're ramping that up. And so we started to see the cost of our unit plummet. And you know, really within the next couple of years, we expect to be at parity, or uh, saving people money on almost all the major produce items. The, un- the units themselves are kind of self-contained. Yeah, we're producing those, you buy them, and then we have a subscription with it that includes the software for us to run it remotely, and then, yeah, a su- uh, subscription of supplies that get delivered to you. If I buy one, how long am I spending on it a week to, to get my veg? So we target 30 minutes. Once someone's fully up to, uh, up to speed, yeah, it's about 30 minutes a week. How long does this, take, this stuff take to grow? Like, is it... Am I am I producing stuff weekly, monthly? Typically, like a head of lettuce takes 30 to 35 days. Some of the microgreens can be about two weeks. Um, and one of the benefits of our approach in the software we've built is we can basically set you up for a schedule. So if you're a school, we could set you up to do a little harvest every week. If you're a like, catering operation, we could set you up to do one mega harvest every month and you clean out the farm. So there's a little bit of a kind of integration with each of the clients we work with. You say you've got like four different modules and each 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 veg takes like a month to grow. You just set them on timer so every week you've got one to, to go and harvest. That's that, quite cool. Yeah, so that that's exactly where we're taking it. So we see this a little bit like the rooftop solar for vertical farming. So you tell us how much produce you need, we'll tell you how many units you need, uh, and then we can make you self-sufficient in those items. So talk, talk to that a bit. So rooftop solar, just as a general technology, or is that an individual company? Oh, uh, no. So, yeah, just as a concept, right? So yeah. photo, the solar uh, photovoltaics have been around for a while. Um, some of those units that you see on rooftops um, have been mass produced. They're now It's now economical for people to just throw them on the house, make themselves self-sufficient energy. You hear those stories of people who are, like, earning money from the solar on their roof. Um, we're not there yet with vertical farming, but that's really how our approach differs to the large-scale vertical farms, right? Because you have solar farms out in the desert, these huge industrial operations, they're produ- also producing energy, but then you also have versions that help individual businesses and consumers um, ha- have their own solar panels, right? And I think the same is going to exist for vertical farming. You can have these big plant factories and greenhouses. Great. They're all growing food, but we're creating a new model that makes it accessible to the businesses and communities that need it. How long did it take from that initial research project to having something that you were excited to sell? And then uh, talk to me a bit about that initial sales process and how you got those first customers on board. I think it, it took a painfully long time. Like yeah. I, uh, I'm super impatient. I think it's really <laughs> important for the business yeah. to have that attitude. But it was, you know, six years. Still, we're still iterating. You know, yeah. to a degree, as in it's it's now getting to a point where we're, we're excited. But those early ones, Graham, my co-founder, and I, we would uh, build them in a workshop. Like at night, we'd just be building, building, trying to make these things, you know, out by hand, hand wired. The whole thing was a mess. 
Uh, and then in the day, I'd be just cold calling, walking around different restaurants. We actually, we don't sell to restaurants anymore, but at the time, I'd just go door to door. You know, and eventually someone would, you know, at, at that time, I think it was more like taking pity on you. They're like, sure, like we have some space, try it out over yeah. there. Um, but over time, you know, you, you get your reps in, you test that prototype, you go and build another one, you go and build another one. And I think that's sort of key to our culture today. We just keep building and yeah, going door to door if we have to. And what's the pitch to them? What, as, what I'm trying to get to is what a... Is is climate the selling point or is health the selling point? Um, for, for us now, quality and, and sustainability comes into it, but that's more of like an overarching goal. Right now, it's quality and reliability of the product. And so for us, um, a lot of chefs in culinary, right, they, they experience that soggy bag of spinach from, you know, California. Mm. Uh, and they know that that's really kind of like a visceral problem for them. And yet they're trying to deliver a really high quality product to their consumer and so we were able to come and be like, hey, grow it here on site. You're going to have that supply right there. Consumers are going to love it. There's a huge kind of engagement piece there. but And you're also going to have quality that you can taste the difference. And I think that's something we hear resoundingly from our clients is it tastes way better. The clients love watching it grow. And the fact that they can actually harvest it there on site, on demand, is really like a huge value add for them. Yeah, I think the, the concept of consistency in this is quite interesting, right? Because consistency has two meanings for your product. One, consistency in the sense that you can be confident that the product is going to be there as you predict it, always when you need it, as as you've scheduled, right? Um, which people may say, oh, yeah, but everything else is abundant. And is it, though? And will it be when the climate starts to change and the agricultural uh, infrastructure we have today has to adapt? You know, will there be stuff to even buy at the scale you need it every time? So with your system, with these localised... Uh, smaller, as you say, distributed vertical farms, you can pretty much codify exactly what you want and when, which is... That's the goal. I would say yeah. we are there now, but it's taken us six years. And the early versions, that's, you know, we've always known what we wanted to do, but as you know, executing these things at scale and delivering that experience, because we're also, we're running mechanical devices remotely with software, and then we're also incubating like living organisms right and so there are so many different variables i think we're we're getting yeah. to a point where it's really reliable but that's that's taken a lot and then the second consistency is the taste of it right because you ever have a you ever buy something from the supermarket and you eat it and you're like that doesn't taste like a, a carrot yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like the whole yeah. time and that, i'd say that is one of the most common pieces of feedback we receive people are just so aware of like that kind of something gets delivered you just eat it and it's like whatever but then when you when you, you remember picking that berry off a plant or picking that leaf and having just how visceral the flavors were mm. and that's something we deliver every day so there you've got that kind of consistency element what other things are you finding people really are liking about this stuff growing food is such an innately human thing right up yeah. until like 50 years ago everyone grew their own food that was part of life and i think that we're a, we're bringing that back in a new form factor and so for a lot of these organizations it's like their in-house uh garden you know and so we sell we sell to people who are really kind of just um, supporting the technology in so much as like banks, insurance companies. Uh, and it's fascinating to see them. They have basically like, you know, groups of their employees and things like that will literally like sign up to watch the farm. Like they love it. And the idea of growing food indoors all year round is something new. And it's kind of bringing back that kind of victory garden that, you know, our grandparents would have you know, been used to. I'm sure there's going to be some research on this at some point, you know, something primal about, growing your food, harvesting your own food and, and not having it just served on your plate, like seeing it grow, um, some kind of caveman, basic. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it's, I think it's just such a cool project, man. We, we spoke a while ago and, yeah, I'm fully behind this. It's so cool. I'd love to see a place where 
everything's just grown on site, right? Because the, you, no food miles. Got to tell you about yeah. a project we just did. So we just did the first vertical farm ever on a cruise ship. So this is one oh, of the right. w- largest cruise ships in the world that launched recently. They have five of our units there. And so one of their restaurants on the top deck is called the Greenhouse is the farms are there. We have enough of them that it's actually growing all of their herbs and garnishes on site in the middle of the ocean. Which I think, you know, crazy example, but I think it's a testament of where this concept is going. So talk to me a bit about uh, the scale you've reached there because that's a really awesome project there. Where have you got to? What's the kind of reach? Yeah, so we launched the gallery, which is our kind of flagship model in April of last year. Um, right now we're operating about 140 locations in across 37 states in the U.S., We've got two international pilots running. Um, so, you know, it's still early days, but it's suddenly we've really started to see the growth curve. Um, and, you know, this year, hoping to get another kind of two to 300 units out, primarily in North America. That's a huge operation. You must have a big team. Yeah, we're about, we're just over 40 full-time. We actually had to build our own kind of facility in Richmond, Virginia, where we're based, to build the units. And I think one of the challenges with a lot of kind of like hard tech, but actually learning how to make the thing is much harder than people think. So the manufacturing process, and that's become something like, even in this early stage, we have sort of our engineers on the line trying to figure out how to eliminate waste from the production process, redesign the product to get the cost out of it. And like, yeah, the operation's uh, much bigger than I ever thought it would be. That's actually a perfect segue. And kind of what I wanted to speak about next was, I speak a lot on this podcast about how climate tech is going to follow so much of the startup wisdom we have out there is based on software and based on like the last generation of companies, which is largely software, basically. Um, so even stuff like the Lean Startup and like all, all, the, all these like cl- all these startup books, you know, they're very tailored towards what I view as like the last generation of companies. However, climate tech, sustainability, it, it this the new generation of companies is going to be very hardware heavy, and that brings together a whole new set of wisdom and a whole new set of best practice and all this kind of stuff, which I don't think is as easy to find out there. And that's what I want to talk about a lot in this podcast. So that's why I'm really excited to have you on because you've literally hands-on scaled a very capital and uh, physical, physically intensive business and you're still doing it. So you're like still in the weeds, right? How, how, has, that, how has that been for you um, as a founder and what are the biggest challenges you faced along that journey? I guess I only have one reference point, which is Babylon, right? It's been my whole life. But um, it's amazingly uh, operationally intense. And I I know why people say hardware is hard. And we've been through raising capital from funds who only invest in software companies. And they're like just the layers of complexity in executing a hardware business is so much more than a software business. And I think uh, that's very true. But it also doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. It's important, right? You you say with our business and the industry, it makes sense. It needs to happen. Same with a lot of these climate solutions. And it's really just about assembling the right team, setting the right expectations and, and you know, rolling up your sleeves. What what are the biggest things? You know, is it, is it funding? Is it finding the engineers? Is it actual coding, engineering yourself? Like what, what are the, what are the biggest hurdles you're facing? There are quite a few. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think on the engineering side, um, you know, we're seeing some amazing examples of like SpaceX, Tesla, you know, really advanced manufacturing companies that I hope are kind of the uh, shining example to the rest of us. Um, but still the engineering talent is hot far, few and far between, uh, especially when you're looking at integrated systems, right? So we have kind of front end, back end, firmware, electrical, all working in harmony with hardware. Mm. Uh, and I think that is really exciting for most engineers. It's a complex product, but you're combining a lot of different disciplines. So that presents some challenges. Then the funding is definitely an issue. You know, I think for 
us and a lot of climate tech startups, the conventional VC model is not right. And the industry, we're finding that you can't blitz, blitz scale a hardware company. Mm. Uh, and the vertical farming industry, I think, is finding that out in uh, finding that out at the moment. Right, there are a lot of companies that are struggling because they've raised they've raised at the wrong expectations. And there's only these are typically the bigger scale ones, but you can only build a you know, hundred thousand square foot facility so quickly, mm. right? And so in five years, the progress hasn't met what they raised at, and that is you know a huge challenge for us in the industry. Talk to me about how you've just yeah just your general experience with VCs and what needs to change. Yeah, and it's not to say that climate tech and, and vertical can't have massive returns. It's just you need kind of high-risk capital up front and quite a lot of it to go and build, commit to the R&D and actually build out facilities to produce these units. And then you have kind of layers of capital intensity, right? You're going to buy inventory. You've got to hold inventory. You've got to finance the construction of the units. There's just lots of layers, and it's quite capital intensive, um, You know, much like a lot of these manufacturing businesses and i think the traditional vc model is about scaling high margin recurring revenue businesses and that those things don't match very well i would i don't want to throw, throw any shade at the community. Um, but I, I think for a lot of them right they're looking for this kind of um, diamond in the rough that will deliver massive outsized returns and so it's kind of small lots of small bets or, or, or larger bets on um, recurring revenue companies that could just catch the zeitgeist and go up and to the right. And I think for a lot of the climate tech companies like us, oh, actually, we've got a great sales funnel. We've got a great business, but it's putting one foot in front of the other. going to go and install these units. And I think the ability to convey to investors that the opportunity is there in a short time frame is difficult, right? Because it's literally they, they're thinking how many hours does it take to ship, build, ship, install, support one of these units, scale that up. 100,000 times to where you need to be. And it's like, damn, that's a lot of infrastructure. And that I think that challenge is something facing a lot of these climate tech and hard tech startups. Yeah, it's heavy. Yes, yeah, it's heavy tech, right? And also there needs to be for VCs as well. I think something that a lot of people don't think about necessarily is they raise their second fund. So you, so you typically you have a, a VC fund where the return window is like eight to 10 years, right? And then you have the VCs will get there. And I, I can throw a share of VCs because I am one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, you, you get your management fees for a set amount of time, right? Um, and then the the rest of the fund may return eight to 10 years down the line. That's a long, 10 years is a long time. And then to not have your management fees for a certain point. So at some point in that process, they're going to need to have another, uh, they, they raise fund two, fund three, whatever, to continue getting the management fees. To do that, they need to show a certain markup, like a, a like a really great markup on that fund one, based on those companies, Series A, Series B, Series C, and the timeframes for for hardware. From what I've seen in my experience so far, is a lot longer. So it also doesn't fit into that structure. So, yeah, it, it, pe people always say that there's a, a funding gap in climate. I, I don't know if it's a gap, so to speak. I think there's enough money out there, but it's it's almost like there's a. a a gap in the structure or the structure's wrong or the incentives are wrong. I haven't fully worked out in my own head yet. But um, yeah, something definitely does need to change. Yeah, I think in, in our case, right, the proof points to show that the system works, that there's kind of product market fit took years. And I think that is yeah. a really difficult thing to convince investors to get behind, right? With a software platform, you might be seeing like rapid month over month growth with great retention and therefore you know at an early stage that it's working pretty well for us it's like well we're gonna have to go and build another product another one another one and then you combine that with like plant growth cycles and while we grow them three times quicker than outdoors still takes weeks months uh -huh. you know things just take longer and you know we're very fortunate to have some amazing investors who backed us this far 
and now we're proving it. But for a lot of climate tech, robotics, a lot of the solutions that we need, yeah, it can be five years of R&D before you even think about launching a product. And I think that's very hard for investors to get behind today. So how do we pl- like how do we plug that? Is it is it grants? Is it is this a government thing, a governmental level that we need to look at? Is like is there another type of funding that we need to look at? Like- yeah, I think the training element for these companies, because it's such a nascent industry, I think there's a new breed of company and people who've been op- worked in those companies that have iterated super quickly and got to products out in the market. And they would both, you know, me and the team have on you in that category where I hope if we do it again, we'd be able to shorten that cycle and maybe yeah. we can pass on that knowledge. But I, I don't know, ultimately with like hardware R&D, you just, there, there is a higher upfront cost. And I think the, the other part is finding product market fit. I think the ability to pre-order and find finance units ahead of time significantly helps. Like I, we saw that in the vertical farming space. Um, a lot of companies would get like uh, produce purchasing agreements, things like that, like pre-orders essentially. Uh, and that would help them finance the build of the farm. But with, with, with financing, right, there, there, there comes a point where you need to be able to um, to pay the debt if, do you know what I mean? So a lot, a lot of people like, oh yeah, we need, we at very early stages, like we need debt financing. So it's like, you have any revenue? How are you going to pay the debt? You know, yeah. so it's like it, it, a lot of work needs to be done, in my opinion, on how we fund these different technologies and and kind of get to where you are. Because like right now, you're very fundable business, in my opinion. Um, it's so cool. The, the potential is huge. But um, six years ago, we're like, oh yeah, we want to start researching on this. I don't know who funds that. <laughs> Me neither. We yeah. we uh, <laughs> I would say people like laugh us out of the room pretty yeah. often because they're like, you're like how old and you want to do this? Like yeah. no no way. Um, I think for us in the US, there's pretty active grant pools and we, we've always really tried to maintain this like high momentum mm. um, culture of like, we were applying for every grant, every opportunity we could get. We were pitching investors at the same time and like hopefully you know, if you have 10 things on the go at any one time, one of them sticks. It doesn't matter that you didn't get the other nine. And I think that's worked for grants. You know, we've now raised, you know, from the National Science Foundation, from USDA, like a lot of these big operations that um, fortunately do have pools of money that are dedicated to hardware R&D. And you said earlier you had to literally build your own factory, right? And that's, yeah. that's another barrier, right? With, with, other, with other products, you can just get mostly get off the ground, get running quickly by... by I, mean, I, I, I worked, we, we did a beer once and it's called Gypsy Brewing. We just brewed in another, someone else's brewery and got going. But this stuff is so technical and I guess niche that that's another capital intensive thing, right? And, and time, time that you have to, this stuff doesn't exist already, so you need to go for it. Yeah, and that, that um, there's been a lot of pressure at the moment, certainly in the US with a lot of manufacturing used to be in Asia and China, that is no longer the case. And they, they actually did have a pretty good setup. We considered it, we chose not to go that route. Um, for us, we are relatively niche, so we needed to have kind of specialized equipment. And we, we try, we talk to all of the major appliance companies and you know they're like, okay, well, we need, you know, several thousand units a year minimum commitment because they produce millions a year. So they wouldn't even talk to you if you're doing thousands. Like, okay, well, we're going to do a hundred this year if we're lucky, you know, and I think that for all these companies, right, there's only so quickly you can start and it's you're going to sell these things one at a time because that's how you have to start. And the, yeah, the infrastructure manufacturing for investors, people don't like to hear that. Mm. <laughs> if you had to go back to the start, right, were the things that you'd, you'd have changed? Like so, so many, but I, I think it's one of those things we didn't know we'd, we'd you don't know what you don't know, right? Yeah, and yeah. I think with me and my co-founder being sort of students of this and, and learn a lot and we kind of commit to doing that, which show, and, and I hope that kind of shows in the business today, but at the beginning we didn't know any of that. So we kind of just had the, you know, we just stick our prototype out there, 
listen to what people have to say, take it back, <laughs> build another one. Um, I think the like rigorous customer discovery, that's something like we are still trying to get better at, but we would, we built quite a lot of things and then took it to show people, which ultimately took a lot of time and money. But again, we didn't really know. And I think that still got great feedback. This, this is really fascinating me from like a psychological perspective, how, I mean, you, you said so many times we didn't know, we just did it kind of thing. And I think that's so interesting for particularly early founders to, to hear because I think in climate tech, I said this on the podcast yesterday, which will, these will come out a week and apart, but we recorded Kieran's one yesterday, is that you, there's there's no right or wrong way to do this stuff. And particularly in newer industries, there's no lean startup, there's no uh, blitz scaling, there's there's none of these books that where people have done necessarily done it before, because uh, like no one's built a vertical farming solution that's hit massive blitz scaling scale yet. So you literally are just like walking in the dark, just trying to, <laughs> well, yeah. it's sort of like you got to know like for instance we knew that hydroponics and vertical farming worked right like the underlying yeah. it was more sustainable uh and it was better for consumers so that was like box check we were convinced that there was kind of this alternate path where businesses and communities would do it if we made it easy enough and we were just trying to connect the dots so you're like everything in between we're like yep we'll just keep going try stuff keep iterating and uh, yeah i think you have to be very comfortable and wrong you know i think that what's the saying strong opinions weekly held that's something like I'm like I'm gonna charge at this idea until someone tells me it's the wrong idea and I'll change in a heartbeat if someone can convince me or a customer tells me that it's not the right idea. From a from a psychological perspective, have you was were you just like charging on and just having shit, like loads of fun like, or was it it's high high highs, low lows, whatever they say, but uh, yeah. it's hugely demoralizing at most times. Like, <laughs> yeah. like to be honest, just like, sales, you're just like yeah. 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 just getting punched in the gut day in, day out, and then like eventually you get that one yes and that like makes it all okay. <laughs> I mean that's a special type of person that just cracks on honestly no, that's why I'm so interested in it anyway uh, what I'd love to know from you and your perspective someone that's so close in, in the industry is what does this field look like in five years and then um, so second question but keep it in mind for the first question is what are other businesses that need to be started to achieve what you want that vision to be in, in five ten years so how does the industry look in five years or how does Avon. In industry, virtual farming, like where's this going? So vertical farming is going to disrupt uh, individual produce categories across the world. So you look in the US, leafy greens, herbs, things like that. It's now cost effective to grow it indoors. You're going to see um, vertical farms popping up in regions that typically had imported it from thousands of miles away. They're going to pop up. They will kind of take over part of the supply for those ingredients. And I think that's super exciting um and there are other categories of produce that they'll go into but really like anywhere that currently imports their produce from thousands of miles away which is you know, europe it's mostly from spain north north africa in the us it's all from california though that that, that supply chain doesn't make sense in mm. when 60 percent goes to waste and the emissions that come from that uh people and one there's an alternative people are going to do that and it's a great industry so yeah like it's in these places that import a lot of produce there for leafy greens herbs some of these categories where it makes sense vertical farms will pop up and become kind of a local and sustainable source uh globally so that mm. that's super exciting and i think beyond that probably five ten year horizon you're going to see new categories emerging berries vine crops that are much more calorific and that those will also be kind of commercially viable at, at scale globally and and what are we talking? So stick with a five year one. Rough percentage. Are we going to be growing ten percent, twenty percent? Like so, how, yeah, at so what scale is just give you an idea of how early the industry is? Today it is like less than one percent of leafy greens 
are grown in greenhouses or vertical farms in the US. Yeah. Less than 1%. Yeah. Uh, and I think you're going to see 50% plus in five to 10 years. 50%? Yep. Whoa. In, in, well, in the US and, and UK. Yep. and Yeah. Yeah, I don't yeah. know the, the stats for the for the yeah. EU, but but um, yeah, it's because if it's economically viable and it's a much higher quality product, like the demand is there. We see that from all of the retails, from our customers, you know, people who are buying from those big farms. People want this. They pe- people recognize it's high quality. They recognize also the shelf life is two weeks when you take it home. There's no soggy spinach when you buy it. Yeah, you know, and so so it's a much better experience for the consumer and a much better flavor. And how close are we to those economics being viable in the sense of when when do we reach parity? So um, we don't do the commercial scale stuff yeah. today, but I think there are farms claim they have it today, and I, I believe that. I think there are some real near-term pressures like energy prices that are kind yeah. of um, really stretching the industry at the moment. But um, for us, you know, we, we expect to be in the next five years at parity on most of those major items. I think there are some, like your romaine lettuce, that's just kind of so common that it's probably always going to be a premium version of that. But for a lot of the herbs, finer ingredients, and, and one of the things that gets me really excited is you can – Vertical farming presents new opportunities to reintegrate food into the supply chain. Yeah. Right? Traditionally, all the stuff you buy in the supermarket is bred or selected for shelf life, durability, not for flavor, not for color, not for texture. Uh, whereas actually there are thousands of varieties of crops that haven't been grown commercially. Oh, and what? you can actually do that indoors, right? Like even with in the lettuce <laughs> lettuce varieties, which I know, strange <laughs> <about>. <laughs> um, there are like thousands of different types of lettuce. They're different shapes, different textures, different flavors. Uh, and yet most of them you wouldn't buy in the supermarket. Whereas in the vertical farms, you actually have complete uh, control and flexibility to kind of grow those food, on, grow, grow those options on site and actually reintroduce different like heirloom supply uh, varietals back into the supply chain. And what is needed to get to the next step of, you say, berries, vines, you say? Yes, what, so yeah. yeah, vines would be like tomatoes, cucumbers, things like that. That's what I'm interested in. How, how, how do we get there? So they can be grown today. And like hydroponics pretty tried and tested at this point. There are people doing it in greenhouses. The indoors is challenging for some of those crops, right? Because they require, they take a lot longer, so they take a lot of space as well. They mm. require a lot of light lighting, but but it's all possible. And I think I think that's where the industry is moving towards. We recognize is it for it to be like a reliable food source and calorie source across the world. Like we need to move into kind of more dense crops. The barrier is they take longer and they're more t- and it's harder inside. Yeah, they're just bi- they're bigger plants, right? So like yeah. a, a tom- tomato vine can be ten feet tall. Right, so to do that indoors, stacked on top, you need a pretty big facility, and I think we're we're just trying to crack that code for leafy greens. Things that are a little bit more compact. That one of the things I want this podcast to be is I want l- potential founders, potential investors, potential anything to have business ideas of where they should be looking. So, for as someone in the industry, what is a, a business that you'd like to see be started that would help you grow, or, or just help the industry grow in general? For me, the biggest bottleneck is around financing. Uh, and as I mentioned earlier, some of the large-scale farms seem to do pretty well out of these sort of p- produce purchase, uh, purchase agreements with big retailers. They'd use that to kind of um, prove demand and then use that to finance the construction of these big farms. That That's great, and, and some people have success with that. But really, I think for us and, and our business, like hardware as a service is super exciting. That is going to be ubiquitous across a lot of these climate tech solutions. And the infrastructure there is very nascent. Like people don't really know to han- how to handle like early-stage climate tech and renting leasing financing kind of batches to test them in the market and we've had to like cobble together different like lease financing sources which 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 is work to to actually test out different units 
But I think that whole, th th there's a lot of opportunity there to help kind of incubate these startups and then fi finance them uh, with their financing as they scale. You you have a very big, like vertically integrated supply chain. Like what's, what's things that could, that could improve that? Oh yeah, so one of the things we're actually working on um, is what what's called like dynamic recipe creation, right? So right now you have a different like uh, seed variety and the conditions, the phenotype that impact the plant's growth. So like this seed, if you give it the right nutrients, the right temperature, humidity, et cetera, will grow to a certain yield, hopefully. And that those conditions are actually different for every crop type and they're actually different for every stage of growth. And so right now the recipes are typically quite static. And so a lot of the AI ML stuff that's coming out and the data collecting is around how do you actually make those recipes change with the plants to suit the plants? So it's like a custom recipe. And I think that is the next wave of the industry. I know quite a few companies are working on it and uh, that should improve yield significantly and lead to, to much better crop outputs. Well, let me see if I understood that properly. So right now, right, you have different, you, you basically have set conditions for individual crops. Yep. And so you're like, right, we're, we're making a lettuce or we're making a herb, whatever. Yep. And you're like, the specific crop has, uh, we need the light at this, at this time, we need the water at this time. But the, the AI things, they they work with the individual crop uh, for that specific seed where is it growing what do we need to change and then what does that make it faster more efficient like how does that yeah, help it's just it's, it's a layer of efficiency so yeah you can actually react to the plant's conditions because you know these are living organisms right and so one too much of one variable will lead to one outcome too little of another will lead to that and so having a automated system that can remove the need for like a professional growth right that's still the standard is like a, a farmer with industry experience can kind of look at the plants but like, okay that needs a bit more of this a bit less of that that can all be automated and i think we're seeing the industry head and in, head in that direction oh because you, you got have you have people literally going around and being like oh i think this needs a bit less so, less light so, yeah. so we don't but the yeah. the industry standard is that right that's sort of mm. the the institutionalized knowledge and there are a lot of companies trying to crack this kind of operating system with dynamic recipes for um indoor farming and i think that that's gonna happen for us again we have a pretty different model so we're building that system for our own applications yeah that's so cool yeah I can't wait to see all the, like, the apples and, and, and every, everything, basically. Because you can just see a scenario where on the edge of cities you have a huge... It can even be underground, right? You don't even need it. Yeah, There's growing underground right here in London. Is actually, it? is using yeah. an old tu uh, tube station. That's so cool. Yeah, because yeah. I literally had it in my head. So if we can build a tube, we can <laughs> just, <laughs> just build loads of underground farms. It'd be really cool. Uh, there's a couple of quotes on your website um, I just want to talk about quickly. Because I thought they were really interesting, and we've touched upon them briefly, but just um, be awesome to get you expand why you cho chose those specific words. One of them is food freedom. Why is that important? Access to healthy and nutritious food should be, you know, kind of a, a human right. Um, and what we see in the U.S. is food deserts are endemic. So there are huge areas of the population where uh, you are literally not within like. Dis, uh, a reasonable distance of fresh produce at all. So you're relying on your convenience store, you're relying on fast food. It's literally a desert of nutrient food. And so we see indoor farming and urban farming broadly as a way to change that, change that narrative. So we're bringing food back to the consumer. We're giving people freedom to actually grow their own, have, have their own supply and grow their own fresh food. Does this open, I don't know if this is a really dumb thing to say, but does this open new areas of land that are livable in a way? Kind of, because like, um, I don't know why my head's just gone to the Middle East there. 
uh, because it just it doesn't look like anything's growing there. And <laughs> this, this, this surely would provide them a much because when you talk about you in the US getting food from California, right? They, surely they're shipping in from way further. Yeah. So the, yeah. the UAE is one of the biggest investors in in vertical farming in the world, yeah. and yeah, they need it. Yeah, they, they need it bad. Eh? Yeah, it's, yeah. All right, yeah. It doesn't look like much is going to be growing in Dubai. The second is, uh, which I thought was a really interesting and clever way to phrase what you do, and that's the art of the perfect produce. Yeah, so we call the farm the gallery, and what we found is that for some of our early um, customers, they are they really want that experience, right? For their consumers, they want the look, they want to put it in their lobby, they want it to be something that they're proud of. Uh, and we've also seen this in other, you know, popular products, right? You got, we knew it was going to be expensive. So we're like, let's lean into that. Let's make it super desirable. And so the art of growing produce is something we're trying to convey that this is like a new way of doing things. And it's going to be a much higher quality product. It's going to look beautiful. And, you know, you've seen this like Tesla started with a roadster. You get to the Model yeah. 3 eventually, right? That's where we're going. So the gallery is really kind of the flagship product, we're collecting a lot of data. We've got some amazing customers. And then we're using that to learn how to grow perfect produce that we can then take down and make more more accessible yeah i love that and i just want to double down listeners this is such an important if you're scaling a climate tech this is such an important point because the, i love the example you moved there right when you're launching a climate business a lot of people say oh well it's tough because it's like too expensive it's just like yes you will be more expensive so you need to find another way to sell and for me looking in the industry the most successful way people have done that is by creating this this air of just like extreme premium thing you know you, you called the galleries it, everything in your in your language on the website is so artistic and it's so aspirational in terms of you know this is art this is new this is the gallery it's so premium and if you can really convince your customers that you are that premium product then the the price tag makes sense and you can charge that and that's exactly what tesla did they were so premium and so exclusive and so silicon valley sexy that they were able to charge huge price points which were enabled them to do the research to bring bring the price point down right yeah. yeah, it's it's so true, and I think that's um, it's actually an ongoing debate in our office. Is I'm I'm still like annoyed almost that we can't be at the Model Three. Like I really I'm so impatient. Yeah. I want us to be accessible, but we kind of look had a hard look at why people are buying, what we are, where we're at, and we're like, yeah, let's make it desirable. Let's lean into it and make it this sort of flagship product. We 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 are, uh, and I'm biased obviously, but we're by far and away the sort of highest quality product in the industry, yeah. and people know that. And I think um, we really lean into the service, the support, and yeah, we charge for it, but we've sort of that allows us to charge more one but it's also we're kind of establishing ourselves as a really high quality brand that i hope will then allow us to kind of launch these other products that are much more accessible yeah and it's just your whole website just looks sexy so, so again, again something <laughs> i talk about on this pod right and i, I say all the time is that really there's some of the really cool technology that is going to help the climate crisis is founded by incredibly scientific people and again i always caveat this with not everyone but on average they index less on the marketing because they think it's less academic whereas really your this is a sales thing everything's a sales everything's storytelling so if you really want to scale businesses you need to be able to persuade yep. persuade and, t and tell an interesting story so i think uh for the list for the listeners and and anyone in this space to use your business as an incredible case study in, in, in doing that, I think it would be a really, really good thing to start to, to do. Uh, just look to the time we're running over. There's, there's a few more questions I want to ask you. And, and one, of, one of them is, do you think you're a health business or a climate business? I think we're literally a health business because food, food is medicine yeah. and we're really about increasing access to healthy fruit, food. I would say I'm driven by the kind of climate tech side of things. This is just where I've, I've kind of 
my first endeavor. Yeah, yeah. See, I th- yeah, I think the health element is so, so interesting. Obviously, they're both inherently linked kind of stuff. But the health element is so fascinating, so on my mind at the moment of, mm-hmm. you know, is, is the nutrients I'm putting into my body actually any good? Like, I'm, I'm buying a salad, whatever, vegetables. Like, how much, how many nutrients are actually in that? And I read this book once. It was a scary, it had, had a quote at the top of a chapter, and it said, um, I can't remember the exact statistic, I'm going to butcher it, but it was like the food we have in our... The, the nutrients in our food today are 74% less than our parents. And I was like, whoa, that's mad. And then as the paragraph started, it was like, guess when that quote was from? And it was from the 20s. So if, that, if that's been around for so long, imagine and with everything that's happened in the last 100 years, how much the food would even come from there. So I'm like, we're having to eat so much more to just get the same uh, macronutrient quality. And yeah, I've said this in the pod t- before, but I think there's a huge... Um, that's a huge sales point. I'd say, like, unfortunately, that is true. But yeah. you know, I guess the positive is all the solutions exist, and yeah. we're we're one of many that are helping to kind of rectify that and give people access to healthy, nutritious food. I, I guess what other markets can can this ap- apply to? Like, the one I have on my mind, right, is that it's not only consumers that eat stuff we grow. This may sound weird, right? But even stuff like Chanel or these perfumes or or the products we wear they all require phys- physical things right and and as as the climate changes their ability to access the produce they need to create their products is going to become less reliable right i got i got a yeah. good buzzword for you so pharma nutraceuticals is the kind of next industry and so that is what's that pharma nutraceuticals yeah that's the one that's a great (laughs) (laughs) tongue twister so um basically a lot of these crops right because we're growing indoors you control the like in the same way we can actually up the nutrient content of our crops because it's controlled environment you can actually lead to um you can kind of alter the conditions to produce certain outcomes so you might have like a herb with a particularly potent uh, aspect to it that can be used in perfumes, right? You yeah. can have some that's used in medicine, and we're seeing a lot of it's actually in the cannabis space. So a lot of the medicinal cannabis plants are growing indoors, same method as we are. They're actually able to dial in their growth recipes to produce certain outcomes. That might be like a big flower. It might be extra potent THC, CBD, whatever it might be. Yeah. Um, and that, that's those same learnings are actually can be then applied to like this whole food as medicine angle and help people produce crops that are, suited for specific applications in yeah like perfume cosmetics even even in the pharmaceutical industry yeah and and just have that reliable the the consistency to know you're going to get the same because you don't want to buy two chanel's and one doesn't smell as good as the other right consistency of of literally the product which is super important but also consistency of price right yeah there's some capital expense up front but then you literally have a fixed supply at a fixed cost that's probably coming down with the way that renewables are going for the energy source yeah, for sure, and they they literally have forward markets to they like lock in prices right of the, right. of their things. So yeah, that's so interesting. I mean, this space is huge. I'm so glad we're out of time. But yeah, where can people find you, and where and how can people that are interested in what you do also get into the space? What would you recommend for that? So to attend all the industry conferences, I'm happy to talk to anyone if they have ideas for entering the space. Uh, and for us, you know, we're babylonmicrofarms.com. We're on Instagram. I'll uh, follow me on LinkedIn. When are you coming to the UK? Because I want it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we are looking at some EU pilots next year. I hope within the next 18 to 24 months, we will be available internationally. 
Okay, I'm going to hold you to that. Cool. Right. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Thank you so much, man. It's been Thank awesome. You. Such an interesting space. One that I'm so bullish on. Uh, thanks for coming in particularly swinging in when you're in a short time you're in the UK so welcome back to London to everyone thank you so much for listening um, I really appreciate particularly that you've stuck to the end <laughs> please um, please like comment subscribe if you haven't uh, like all the different engagements I do, they will do wonders for the reach of this podcast which is so important because um, I love spreading messages like this one such an important stuff man so yeah thanks again and um, let's enjoy a sunny day in London Great to be here yeah. <laughs>